Hello everyone and welcome to the October 2nd edition of the WorkUp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. 3M announced it has resolved the defective military earplug cases for $6 billion. The earplug litigation represents the largest mass tort in U.S. history. There have been more than 300,000 claims in which veterans accused 3M and Aero Technologies, a company acquired by 3M in 2008, of producing faulty earplugs that failed to protect their hearing from noise damage when they received them from the U.S. military. 3M manufactured, marketed, and sold its Combat Arms Earplugs Version 2 from 1999 to 2015, with an alleged design defect which hampered their effectiveness. The settlement comes after 3M failed to move the lawsuits into bankruptcy court in hope of limiting its liability. The Veterans of Foreign Wars, that's VFW, National Commander said, This settlement is a tremendous outcome for veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan who came home with hearing damage due to 3M's faulty earplugs. Last summer, Aero Technologies filed for bankruptcy as a separate company, accepting responsibility for all the liability claims, and the move was intended to give Aero leverage in bankruptcy court to reach a settlement with the plaintiffs. But a bankruptcy court judge dismissed Aero's bankruptcy filing in June after ruling that Aero did not qualify for bankruptcy protections as a distressed company since it had 3M's promise to pay for a settlement. The bankruptcy appeal is being held in abeyance pending finalization of this $6 billion settlement. 3M had tried to shift the blame to its subsidiary, who it said was responsible for the defective airplugs, and who had filed the Chapter 11 bankruptcy to avoid paying claimants. The new settlement agreement includes all claims in the multi-district litigation in Florida and the coordinated state court action in Minnesota, as well as potential future claims. Arrow and 3M are actively engaged in insurance recovery activities to offset a portion of the settlement payments, and Arrow initiated insurance recovery litigation against its carriers last June. The Court of Appeal ruled against Cal OSHA in a Valley Fever case. The California Flats Solar Protection is a large solar power plant built on part of a former cattle ranch in the southeastern corner of Monterey County. Granite Construction was involved as a subcontractor in the construction of this project. The Monterey County Planning Department required the primary project contractor to prepare and implement a worker training program about valley fever before any grading activity. Consistent with these requirements, the owner of the project site created a valley fever fact sheet, a valley fever training program, and a valley fever management plan for the project. The project general contractor, in turn, created a safety plan that identified valley fever as a potential risk and described methods for mitigating this risk. 
Granite Construction also discussed Valley Fever and safety instructions to its employees. After all of this, Cal OSHA began an inspection of the project worksite, which ultimately centered on the potential exposure of Granite's employees to the fungus which causes Valley Fever. During their site visits, Cal OSHA staff did not wear respiratory protection themselves to prevent their own potential exposure to coccididiodiodes, that's the fungus responsible for the disease, nor did they test the site for coccididiodiodes, although staff assumed that tests were available to determine the presence of the fungus. And no evidence in the record shows that any granted employee contracted valley fever, nor does any testimony show that any person who visited the worksite contracted valley fever. Nonetheless, Cal OSHA issued a citation to Granite for allegedly violating three regulations. It alleged Granite Construction violated the regulation because it required its employees to wear masks without first providing a medical evaluation to determine their fitness to wear them. And two other regulations because it exposed its employees to dust containing the harmful fungus that causes valley fever and failed to implement adequate measures to limit this exposure. After Granite Construction disputed these allegations, an administrative law judge rejected Cal OSHA's claims because no credible evidence showed that Granite required its employees to wear masks and no reliable evidence showed that fungus was present at the worksite. But after the Cal OSHA petition for reconsideration, the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board reversed on these issues and ruled for Cal OSHA and against the employer. So then the case moved to Superior Court, which denied Granite's petition for a writ of administrative mandate seeking to set aside the board's decision. On appeal from the trial court, the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case of Granite Construction Company versus Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board. It agreed with Granite's claim that insufficient evidence shows its employees were exposed to the fungus, but it rejected its additional claim that it allowed rather than required its employees to wear masks. Finding sufficient evidence supports the board's contrary ruling on this other point. Over the years, the board has discussed two competing standards for evaluating whether an employee has been exposed to an atmospheric contaminant within the meaning of the regulation. It established the first standard, the harmful exposure standard, decades ago, and has since suggested that an alternative standard, the zone of danger standard, might be more appropriate in evaluating alleged violations such as this one. Under this alternative standard, the division must show either that the employees have been or are in the zone of danger or that it is reasonably predictable by operational necessity or otherwise, including inadvertence, that, operati- uh, that employees have been, are, or will be in the zone of danger. To date, the division has yet to decide which of these two standards the harmful exposure standard or the zone of danger standard is the appropriate one in cases like this. The Court of Appeal concluded 
that under either standard, the board's findings that employees were exposed to dusts containing valley fever fungus lacked evidentiary support. All of the evidence showed, with no degree of certainty, that the worksite might have presented a danger to employees because the fungus might have been present in the soil. That, however, is insufficient to support the board's finding that the worksite was in fact a zone of danger. And in another case, a California school district struggled to prove the exclusive remedy defense in a lawsuit brought against it by a school volunteer. The, volunteer, uh, the volunteer was Anel Perez. She filed a civil complaint against Galt Joint Union Elementary School District, which alleged that she was acting as a volunteer for the spelling bee held at River Oaks Elementary School. While attending the spelling bee event in 2015, she fell off the school's auditorium stage and then down an adjacent stairway, causing her to suffer a catastrophic injury. The school district raised the affirmative defense of the workers' compensation exclusive remedy. The litigation was then bifurcated, and Phase 1 involved only the applicability of the exclusive remedy defense, and would address whether the school district adopted a resolution under Labor Code Section 3364.5 to provide volunteers workers' compensation benefits. This is a prerequisite for workers' compensation to Perez's sole and exclusive remedy. A number of witnesses testified during the phase one of the trial over a number of days that touched on three key issues. One, a 1968 adoption of a resolution pursuant to Labor Code Section 3364.5 by the Governing Board of Galt Joint Union School District. Two, the names by which the district identifies itself now and back in 1968, at the time of this resolution, since it had changed, and three, and who exactly was the designee authorized to approve volunteers. Plaintiff, the injured party, testified she had two children who attended River Oaks Elementary at the time of the accident, and she was a frequent volunteer at the school, and was also vice president of the PTA, and that it was the PTA president who actually asked her to volunteer at the spelling bee. However, plaintiff agreed that during the time of the spelling bee and before her fall, she understood that she was under the direction and control of Mrs. Yaunt, who was, in essence, running the spelling bee. Now, Lois Yaunt testified she has worked for Galt Joint Union Elementary School District for 20 years, and as a school administrator, she would oversee every aspect of the school, including student safety and staff safety, day-to-day -day happenings, and school functions. And her direct supervisor was the district superintendent. After conclusion of the phase one of the trial, the court entered judgment in favor of the school district on the ground that a resolution had been passed under Labor Code Section 3364.5 in 1968, by the Governing Board of Galt Joint Union District of Sacramento and San Joaquin Counties, that's a different name, for the Galt Joint Union School District. 
and that converted plaintiff's status to that of an employee under the Act, rendering workers' compensation as the sole and exclusive remedy to compensate her for her injuries. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of Perez versus Galt Joint Union Elementary School District. Generally, a person performing voluntary services for a public agency who does not receive remuneration for the services is excluded from the definition of employee under the Workers' Compensation Act. However, under certain circumstances, usually upon the governing board's adoption of a resolution, volunteers can be deemed employees under the Act. In response to the plaintiff's arguments against application of Section 3364.5, the Court of Appeal concluded that so long as a resolution has been passed at some point by the governing board of a district and not later rescinded, Labor Code Section 3364.5 does not require district board members to know about and authorize a specific volunteer involvement in a specific activity for the exception to apply, and district board members do not need to directly control and direct a volunteer's actions for the same exception to apply. And now our crime report. The Labor Commissioner's Office has cited five Kern County Wing Stop restaurants and their owner, Clinton Lewis, nearly $3.2 million for wage theft violations, affecting 551 workers. Its investigation that the five Wingstop locations were each operating as a separate corporate entity, although the same person, Clinton Lewis, owned and operated each of them and shared employees between the multiple locations. But, by treating such location as a separate employer, Lewis paid the workers the lower minimum wage for small employers with 25 or fewer employees. The Labor Commissioner's Office determined that legally, Lewis's restaurants were a single employee at the five locations, and the workers should have been paid the higher minimum wage for employers with 26 or more employees and workers scheduled to work at more than one wing stop in one day were denied overtime pay when they worked more than eight hours in a workday or 40 hours in a work week. Mr. Lewis also avoided paying missed meal break premiums to workers when scheduling them to work at more than one location. The employees also lost out on getting paid for off-the-clock work for the time traveling from one work, work site to another during the workday. And now our regulatory news. The U.S. Department of Labor announced that its Occupational Safety and Health Administration award, awarded about $12.7 million in grants to 100 nonprofit organizations across the nation to support education and training to help workers and employers recognize serious workplace hazards employ injury prevention, and understand workers' rights and employers' responsibilities under federal law. OSHA awards these grants to nonprofit organizations, including community and faith-based groups, employer associations, labor unions, joint labor management associations, Native American tribes, and local and state-sponsored colleges and universities. 
The target trainees include small business employers and underserved vulnerable workers in high-hazard industries. Many of the recipients of the fiscal year 2023 training grants will provide training and education in their regions and across the nation. And several of them are in California, such as the University of California, San Diego, that received $159,946. The Port of San Diego Ship Repair Association received a grant of $81,016. Asian Immigrant Women's Advocates in Oakland received $55,000. National Day Labor Organizing Network in Pasadena received a grant of $160,000, and Community Services and Employment Training Incorporated in Visalia received $160,000. These are good places for small employers to look for training using the grant money. And the complete list of grant recipients is available online. And the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has released its COVID-19 in California Workers' Compensation 2023 update. And it seems that the news is slightly better than it has been since the pandemic began. Through July, a total of nearly 324,000 COVID-19 claims have been reported to the Division of Workers' Compensation. Self-insured employers have reported more than half of the COVID-19 claims, whereas self-insured employers' claims make up about one-third of non-COVID-19 claims. More than half the 2022 claims were reported in January during the Omicron surge, after which there was a notable and rapid decline to around 2% of claims. Following the vaccine rollout and a significant decline in spring of 2021, the proportion of COVID-19 claims began to increase again with the emergence of the Delta variant and the Omicron variant, but this surge peaked in January 2022. Throughout the pandemic, the healthcare sector consistently had the highest proportion of indemnity claims related to COVID-19 within the insured sector. Public administration, which includes some first responders, also saw a significant number of COVID-19 claims. Now, the share of the indemnity claims related to COVID-19 has decreased across all industries. Through 2021, manufacturing held the second highest share of COVID-19 claims among all of the sectors. However, as the economy rebounded late in 2021 and during 2022, the second highest share of claims were from the accommodation and food services sector. Workers between the ages of 16 and 39 accounted for over half of all COVID-19 claims, a slightly higher proportion than that seen among all indemnity claims for younger workers. And throughout the pandemic, 80% of all COVID-19 death claims have been incurred by workers aged 50 years or older, in contrast to less than one-third of all indemnity claims in this age group. One quarter of incurred losses on COVID-19 claims in 2022 are on death and permanent disability claims. And this marks a significant decrease from 2021 when half of the incurred losses on COVID-19 claims 
were related to death and PD claims. Nearly all indemnity-only claims from year 2022 have an incurred value below $5,000. But in prior years, the share of COVID-19 claims exceeding $5,000 were several times greater than that of non-COVID-19 indemnity claims. And denial rates on COVID-19 claims have been higher than on non-COVID-19 claims as, on average, only about 8% of non-COVID claims are denied, and this has continued throughout the pandemic. Many COVID-19 claims are denied due to the lack of a positive test result for the COVID-19 infection. Virtually all COVID-19 indemnity-only claims close quickly, as they typically involve only short durations of temporary disability, with nearly all claims closed by 18 months. And a new CWCI study shows SB863 cost reductions by that reform bottom out by 2015. Average paid losses on California workers' compensation lost time claims fell immediately after SB863 legislative reforms took effect a decade ago, but then gradually increased up until the pandemic hit. Currently, average paid losses on claims at all valuation points within 60 months of injury are above their post-reform lows, with older claims still showing declines in loss payments in the wake of the 2012 reforms. Average total paid losses within the first year of injury fell immediately after the 2012 reforms took effect, but bottomed out in 2014 and started to trend upwards in 2015 and continued to increase through 2020. For the first time in seven years, the 6- and 12-month average paid losses fell slightly in 2021, which is the second year of the pandemic while the six-month payments on 2022 claims edged up slightly. Thus, average total losses in the initial months after injury have changed little since the pandemic began. The CWCI has published its study in a research update report, California Workers' Compensation Claims Monitoring Medical and Indemnity Development Average Year to 2013 through 2022. And in medical news, costly health care presumption of AOECOE proposed law failed passage by the legislature at least for this year. National Nurses United, with nearly 225,000 members nationwide, is the largest union and professional association of registered nurses in the U.S. history. In 2009, California Nurses Association played a lead role in bringing state nursing associations across the nation together into one national organization, National Nurses United, or NNU. At its founding convention, NNU adopted a call for action to counter what it called the national assault by the healthcare industry on patient care conditions and standards for nurses, and to promote a unified vision of collective action for nurses. This legislative year, nurses across California were instrumental in the introduction of AB 1156, a bill that would define injury for a hospital employee 
who provides direct patient care in an acute care hospital and would create a rebuttable presumption that these injuries arose out of and in the course of employment. And the bill would extend these presumptions for specified time periods after the hospital employee's determination of employment. Fortunately for California employers, AB 1156 was last found stranded in the Assembly Insurance Committee as of March 2023. It failed the deadline to move from Policy Committee to Fiscal Committee as of April 28, 2023. Thus, the measure did not proceed to be passed by the legislature in the current session, but technically is still alive for 2024 consideration. And a new law facilitates the Physicians and Dentists from Mexico program. This is a pilot program established in California by AB 1045 back in 2002. It was designed to bring physicians and dentists from Mexico with rural experience who speak the language, understand the culture, and know how to apply this knowledge in serving the large Latino communities in rural areas who have limited or no access to primary health care services. Proponents of the measure were concerned about addressing primary care physicians and dentist shortages while maintaining a high quality of care. The bill authorized up to 30 licensed physicians and up to 30 licensed dentists from Mexico to practice medicine or dentistry in California for up to three years and required the individuals to meet certain requirements related to training and education. Any funding necessary for the implementation of this pilot program, including the evaluation and oversight functions, was to be secured from nonprofit philanthropic entities. Implementation of the program could not move forward unless appropriate funding was secured. The Medical Board of California received this necessary philanthropic funding back in 2018 to initiate the program and began taking the necessary steps for implementation. And as of April 2019, the Medical Board of California began accepting applications for the Mexico Pilot Program. It received the required funding commitments necessary for program implementation in December 2020, and as of September 2022, the Medical Board of California had issued 21 licenses to qualified Mexico pilot program applicants and anticipates approving a total of 30, the maximum under the law, by spring of 2023. But, the licensee at the time of issuance of a license is required to provide a federal taxpayer information, including the applicant's social security number or individual taxpayer identification number, and the board is prohibited from processing an application for an initial license unless the applicant provides that information where requested on the application. So now Governor Newsom just signed AB. 1295 into law. So now, for purposes of this pilot program, the medical and dental boards are now authorized to issue a three-year non-renewable license to an applicant who has not provided an individual taxpayer identification number 
or social security number, but the applicant would be required to immediately seek an appropriate three-year visa and social security number from the federal government within 14 days of being issued the medical license and the applicant from engaging in the practice of medicine until the board determines that these conditions have been met. There was no opposition to this new law shown in the legislative history. And more than three years into the pandemic, millions of people claim to have suffered long COVID. And for those who have claimed workers' compensation benefits, long COVID cases are the most costly. Now, according to a new study, there soon may be scientific methods to confirm that they have long COVID as they claim. Scientists may have found clear differences in the blood of people with long COVID, a key first step in the development of a diagnostic test. These researchers from Yale School of Medicine and the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, with contributions from Stanford University, were able to identify a range of biomarkers and predict with 94% accuracy who had long COVID. And the research is among the first to prove that long COVID is in fact a biological process. Infection with long COVID can result in the development of a post-acute infection syndrome, that's P-A-I-S, also known as long COVID. Individuals with long COVID frequently report unremitting fatigue, post-exertional malaise, and a variety of cognitive and anatomic dysfunctions. However, up until now, the biological process associated with the development and persistence of these symptoms is unclear. One of the strongest findings of the new study was that long COVID patients tended to have significantly lower levels of a hormone called cortisol. The findings that most definitely separated people with and without long COVID and likely signals that the brain is having trouble regulating hormones. The research team plans to dig deeper into the role cortisol may play in long COVID in future studies. A major function of the hormone is to make people feel alert and awake. Low cortisol could help explain why many people with long COVID experience profound fatigue, but unfortunately, simply boosting a person's cortisol level in an attempt to fix the problem is not yet recommended. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. <music>